Hello, and welcome to the second chapter. I'm your host, Kristen Duffy, and I'm here to remind you that it's never too late to start your next chapter and to share stories of interesting and insightful women who may just inspire you in your current chapter. This week, I'm speaking with Katie Walgrave. Katie has had various career shifts of her own, both as a teacher and as a writer. However, her current calling is helping other second chapterers, aka career shifters, transition into teaching through her organization, Now Teach. Katie and I talk about her life as a teacher, the fascinating people who have chosen teaching as their next career, and why teaching may be woefully undervalued to begin with. Now, I'm not for a second suggesting, oh, look, we've got this army of people that are coming in to revolutionize schools and make them all better. But it's a really fascinating kind of collision of different worlds. And it feels that if they can manage it well, which they can, this kind of positive collision is exciting to see what emerges. Hi, Katie. Thanks so much for joining me on the second chapter. How are you? I'm very good. Thank you. How are you? I'm well now that we got past some audiovisual difficulties. <laughs> We went slowly lower and lower tech, I feel, but we got there. Fantastic. <laughs> yes. So if anyone's listening and our sound's not great, just be glad there's a podcast at all. <laughs> so it's interesting to me because when I was asking you some pre-questions, you said you didn't really feel like you had a career change. However, when I've been doing my research on you, I feel like you've had all kinds of interesting changes. So I'm really excited to talk to you about your various, we can call them shifts if you prefer. And of course, I think you're going to be really inspirational to people who are debating maybe a career shift as well. That's very kind of you. You've had some incredible people on your book. So thank you for having me. And I shall do my best. As far as the beginnings, the humble beginnings, you were a history major originally that kind of led you to history teaching. But what drove you to want to be a history teacher or to study history, I should say? I don't even know if that was your original intent. I think the studying history part, I don't know, childhood, my grandmother loved history. She got a place at Oxford, but then left to get married because that was what you did if you were a woman back then. And instead, she spent her whole life writing a history of, I was going to say her family, but her husband's family, really. And I think just those stories that families tell, I think that probably got me interested in history. But I don't really think I had any idea what I was going to do beyond university. That always seemed like the kind of end goal with university. And then you suddenly think, oh, God, something next. And then like so many things in probably everyone's life, but certainly my life, total bit of chance, luck, whatever. I was had a conversation with someone who was starting up this thing called Teach First, which was modeled on Teach for America, but it didn't exist yet. And the idea was it was encouraging people into disadvantaged state schools as a kind of aspirational thing to do with the commitment being you taught for a couple of years. And that seemed to me a great idea. I had spent my gap year in India teaching, loved it, very different context, but nonetheless, there was something in it. And the oldest of four, maybe that helped with the whole teaching. <laughs> I'm bossy, very bossy, my siblings would probably say. And then Yes, yeah, so I just signed up all the kind of other people were doing the doing the rounds of the management consultants and banks and all that. I couldn't see myself heading down that route. And this seemed like a nice option, not least because you left university in the July or whatever and started teaching and indeed earning a bit in the September. So yeah, it didn't seem like a very well thought through plan, but it worked. <laughs> and you taught age-wise, you taught older, right? Yeah, it wasn't 11 young to 18, kids. 11 to 18, so secondary school. I've done a little tiny bit of supply teaching, like assistant supply teaching yeah. and got put in nursery. And I thought, oh, that'd be so fun. Really little kids. And I was yeah. just like, no, there's no structure. I don't think this would be the age for me. No, I couldn't. My littlest is two now and I would struggle with <laughs> not teaching. It's something else. It's very skilled and important, but it's not my 
not my bag. No, so I did 11 to 18 year olds and loved it. And I love teenagers. You would struggle with secondary if you didn't, obviously. <laughs> you can't love all teenagers. But I love that stage of life where people are beginning to make their own identity, their own opinion, discovering sarcasm and humor in a different way. And it's an important, exciting time. And it's obviously very formative and a really interesting one to be a teacher. And you mentioned India, but were you in India more than once? Did you go back? How did that work? Yeah, I did. I went researching. I went to get, when I left school, I took a year before going to university where I was having earned a bit of money spent most of it in Kerala in the south of India. Then I went to university where I met the man who is now my husband, which seems astonishing because in retrospect we were basically children when we got married. But we travelled back to India that the first the, the summer of the end of my first year together as friends in fact and came back as a couple. And so since then India has by definition been part of my life. He's Indian and we've always had reasons to go back. But twice we've gone and lived there for a slightly extended period of time. So my children are of Indian. I am technically a person of Indian origin, which I'm very proud of. <laughs> so just out of curiosity, the differences in teaching here versus there. Well, I mean, for one thing, from that stint of teaching, I would have up to 60 kids. This was teaching in a very poor rural school. You have every kind of school in India from you know, world-beating international private school to where I was, which is a very poor rural school in a kind of building which had, what do you call them, kind of partitions between the classrooms, but not walls. So definitely all right. the noises. And I would have, say, 60 kids in mind, but next door another 60, another 60. So the noise was pretty intense. And I was teaching them English rather than history. But it was just such fun because in a way that is much harder for reasons that make sense, but you were properly part of the community there. So every if I'd wanted to, I could have been gone out in a child, the family's home every evening. Because as the teacher, I was encouraged, assumed to be a part of the community in a way that we have put up more boundaries and they make sense from child protection points of view and everything. Whereas when I went to teach, when I started teaching in London, I was teaching in Hounslow, which is just near the, just under Heathrow Airport, which is why the mm-hmm. teachers always said, these children are, they're loud, they have to be loud. But you know, this is not many miles from where I'd grown up in West London, but it was another world. And truthfully, I belonged to it much less than I ever did to the world of my students in India because of schools in school. And that's right. And as it should be under our system, it's fine. But it is, I think that was for me one of the very different, the great differences in the experience was that I was absolutely a part of the school community, but not part of their community outside of school at all. Do you feel like you were more appreciated as a teacher being part of the community? If somebody wanted to have you around for dinner or something that feels like a real appreciation versus, I don't, I think most people would say teachers aren't appreciated enough in the US or the UK. Yeah, I don't know. I think partly it's just a totally different, I think there is in many ways a deeper appreciation for education and what it can give you in India. I think that's often said and probably True. I also think that that I, mean, I don't know. Yeah, yes, probably there is a different kind of appreciation. And one of the kind of hopes with now teachers has been so not going to do it on its own. But there's something about the status of teaching and the profession which is wrong. I mean, I strongly believe it's one of the most important, if not the most important. And it doesn't it doesn't feel like that in a here or, or in the US, from what I understand either. Yeah. Having both perspectives, I just feel like I do want to talk a bit about how people perceive teaching, but yeah, just in my own experience, it's definitely not paid or treated as the people that are literally shaping 
who the future will be. Exactly. If you get this part right, you don't need to bother getting a lot of the other parts right, whether it's to do with the criminal justice system or anything else. But if you could really work this part out, and you know, it's always a, yeah, we have a huge inequality of investment in the education system here and they create very different outcomes and it's just you know fundamentally it's not fair but yeah the status ought to be greater and I think the Teach First Teach for America those sorts of initiatives around the world have done something to contribute not totally uncontroversially but they've done something to contribute I kind of hope for now Teach which is bringing later stage career changes into teaching would be that you know if you have a whole bunch of lawyers and doctors I know other successful people thinking now what I want to do with my life is teach that does something similar to say this is an aspirational choice this is an important thing for someone with a whole bunch of options and they think what they want to do with their life is this is something and I definitely want to get into the nuts and bolts of now teach but first you mentioned (laughs) teaching English and I know you had a PhD as well or you have a PhD in creative writing where did that fall in everything I know. I think maybe I'm as much about kind of concurrent careers as, <laughs> as consecutive ones. So I, that came a little bit later. So I taught for about five years. And at the end of that time, I had been plotting with a friend, someone I met in the pub, a writer who is a wonderful writer, William Fine. And he was being paid by the American School in London, which is a very fancy private school, to be their writer in residence and to teach these students writing it was extracurricular and they would publish a book at the end it was all sounded lovely and he was telling me about this because I was interested obviously as a teacher and I got a bit chippy and was all well it's fine so but those students are going to be fine anyway these are the kids who have it all it's the kids in the schools like mine who need it and so to his eternal credit he said well they're paying me so well I'm going to consider it that they're paying for me to do another day as well and came into my school and I rounded up some students where this is not a culture we had detention might happen after school, but there wasn't at that stage a lot going on extracurricular. There was sport a bit, football and things. It's not where it's somewhere like the American school. It's all about societies and this and that and clubs. Anyway, these amazing students came. For some reason, there was a shopping trolley, I remember, in the room we were doing it, which none of us ever stood, understood quite, but there was this shopping trolley. So in the end, our anthology that we wrote was called uh, actually, no, it wasn't. It was called On a Wednesday because we did it on a Wednesday. And then the front cover picture was of a shopping trolley that Will persuaded an artist for the New Yorker to do, which is rather brilliant of him. <laughs> and, and something kind of magical happened. This group of six formers began to write. And first of all, they were writing, I don't know, sort of Harry Potter ripoff. Everybody was a wizard or something. And they were all at posh boarding schools in London. And they were certainly all called things like Harry. And I didn't teach. There's one white student in that grew you know this was not a school where people were called things like harry and hermione or whatever and in by the end they were writing about the memory of a grandmother cooking in afghanistan or whatever it might have been that was true and of course by then you can build in the fantasy to the sort of plot but they were understanding something about their own stories and their own voices being important and that being the kind of stepping off point for greater creativity so it was very powerful very moving and we decided that we would try and do this beyond just my school. And we'd scoop up a bunch of writers, raise some money and try and launch this scheme in other schools. And so at that point, coming back in a very long winded way to your question about the PhD, I had also been working on an MA in writing and I got a book offer, something totally separate to write about. And um, I was writing about the daughters of Wordsworth and Coleridge, the romantic poets. Um, and so it seemed like a time there were these two projects I had, the first story, the writing charity and the book. And I didn't have children. I didn't have more. You know, it seemed like a good time to take a bit of a risk. And so did those 
for together. The book took a long old time to write. It took me about five years. I think it came out in 2013, by which time first story had grown and was working in, I don't know, probably about 50 or 60 schools by then and was becoming a kind of established thing. So that was my, that sort of chunk of my life was, and the book and the PhD went along one another. I was very lucky to study under Catherine Hughes, who's a great biographer. And if I'm honest, it was the PhD was the most brilliant way of just holding me accountable to myself and making <laughs> sure to have every sort of few months a session in the British Library with Catherine, where she would know if I hadn't written anything. <laughs> it was brilliant. As someone who's only done bachelor's degrees, I feel like when I hear about people doing something like a master's or even more so a doctorate, and it's this managing your own time, and this is your research time, or this is your writing time, I would need that accountability, whether I was writing a book or getting a PhD, because, yeah. oh, I've got months. Oh, I've got days. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And actually, they were a bit good sort of foil for one another. If I wasn't feeling bad about the deadline for the book, I should feel bad about the deadline for the PhD. It was great. But I have a certain that my sister is a real doc and I'm always <laughs> slightly wary of it. It's a very different thing. It was a huge luxury and a fantastic thing to be able to do. And a part of myself, if you like, that I hope I'll return to at some point. There hasn't been a lot of writing in the last few years and I don't want to completely lose that. that I don't know, that part of my identity, I suppose. It sounds like you're writing, or at least with the book, it really happily melded the worlds of history and writing and brought a lot of different things together. It did. It really did. And I think the truth was, from a sort of lifestyle perspective at that stage, I had a job that I was passionate about and gave a lot to. And I had the book that I was passionate about and gave a lot to. Now I have children <laughs> that matter more than anything else. And there's also space for a job. But I don't think right now it feels always there's space for the writing. But then what's exciting about what you're doing, what I'm doing, all this is this sort of sense of life is long and in phases. So when I get sort of anxious about that, I think, well, all too soon, those little children will will not need me quite so much in quite the same way. <laughs> I hope still need me, but it won't be for quite such a uh, time intense things in the same way. And that's perhaps where writing slots in. Yeah, there's no rush. <laughs> it seems like there's lots of other things you're doing that were really interesting. I love what you were saying about first story too, because one of my things in my production company is tell your story or tell our stories. And because I'm so into the idea of us continuing to have a story past 35, past mm -hmm. 45, past 55. And I really... I love the idea of women telling their stories and that these stories don't end at a certain age. But it was really interesting what you said too about these kids that maybe had been brought up knowing popular culture that they couldn't really necessarily see themselves then and getting the opportunity. And I'm assuming that grew as the schools grew, yeah. but getting the opportunity to tell their own story in some way. Yeah, I think that's exactly it. But you're right. It's women. It's older people often hearing those stories. But, you know, we don't, there is no one story that you, <laughs> from the women's point of view, it's too often been there. And then they got married and lived happily ever after. <laughs> We're some way beyond that, but not always in the stories. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And sometimes you don't see the faces or you don't, depending on who it is, the stories are so diverse in the world. And I think we still just scratch the surface of all mm. the stories that we should be exposed to all mm -hmm. of the time. No, I couldn't agree more. And that's where it's been really it's funny, isn't it? When you're doing something, you see all the problems and anxieties. But since I've stepped back from first story, which I did in 2013 or something like that, it's been amazing to see it from a distance run as it brilliantly is first by a colleague called Monica Paul and then more recently by Antonia Byatt. And you see it from a bit of a distance. And I think that's awesome what they're doing now. You know, it, it's a good thing. <laughs> and I'm sure you must look back with a lot of pride and know that you were a big part of how it all became a thing to begin with. <laughs> 
<laughs> something about beginning it. I think there is there's different types of people, aren't there? There are the kind of people who are good at starting something up and the people that are good at keeping them going longer. And knowing when one becomes the other is quite an important skill for someone who found something, I think, not to stay on too long <laughs> thinking that you have the answers. As far as founding things, you mentioned Now Teach. Tell me a bit about how that came to be and let everybody know what it exactly it is. Now Teach, we began in 20, in fact, I can age it exactly by my twin. So we began it in 2016. So I stopped doing First Story in about 2013 for a bunch of reasons. One of which was that I think I was a better starter than I was perhaps the kind of person who takes things to be a big old, big old organization. But the other was that we were trying and failing and trying and failing to have a successful pregnancy. And that was tough. And part of the question, you know, everyone says, oh, you shouldn't be stressed. But another miscarriage, you shouldn't be stressed. And I'm not sure I even think there's a link. But you don't want to do anything that would would cause you to make, have a regret. Part of the reason stopping. Also that I felt like we'd got, I got to a bit of a rut. I felt like all of my friends were having children and they probably all weren't, but it felt like it. So the opportunity came up to go to India with my husband's work and I got a job teaching at a university there and we thought if we're not going to have children we should go and do something that would be harder to do with kids and I kept coming back for IVF I still had some embryos here because we'd gone on down that road and of course you know we were that couple where the last embryos and all of that and so I came back in 2016 pregnant with twins who is the most astonishing miracle, as all babies are, but these ones felt it particularly. Anyway, so I came back to England with these tiny babies, to have these tiny babies. And in March 2016, there I was, and then was introduced to Lucy Calloway of the FT, who you might have come across, brilliant columnist. And she had been introduced to, we were introduced by somebody because she was interested in becoming, at the age of 58 or 57, a teacher. And she didn't quite know what next steps and so on whether it was a good idea. So my main reason for wanting to hang out with her was adult conversation. <laughs> and so she came in the morning and we held one of these tiny little babies each, and they really were little, and talked and talked. And by the time she left that evening, I think now teacher had been born probably. And one of the things I mentioned, the babies, so particularly because we had both also read this book, 100 Year Life, which you've probably come across. Actually, I've heard you talking about it. And I feel like <laughs> I cannot believe that is a book I have not read. It's great. And I think they were really saying something that even then was more, novel. you know, we, we've, we've accepted. I feel like there's been quite a change in talking about longevity even in the last five, six years. But you know, essentially, in many ways, it says what's on the cover. But one of the striking things was, according to they, whoever they are, statisticians, both those little babies born in 2016 are more likely to live to 100 than not. But you know, we were thinking how profoundly this is going to change their ideas about work education careers the order in which these things happen and it, it won't be I presume school study job retire it's all that changing and we were talking about that amongst other things and thought Lucy couldn't be the only nutty person in the world who wanted to jack in a highly successful career and quite a Christian one as she would put it and start all over again and we got tons of stuff wrong of course along the way but I think in that little insight we were right that there's more people than ever who reach a certain age, whatever age it might be for them, and think, I don't want to be doing this for the next 20, 30, 40 years, but I'm not sure what I do want to be doing. Right. And actually, there's time and the possibility of starting all over again. So we did it all backwards and wrong, really. So we had that first conversation into the early summer and then launched it that autumn and started with our first group of 45 brave teachers in 
the autumn of, of September 2017, I guess. And since then, we've changed the sort of model and the way we work. But the fundamental is the same, that we recruit brilliant people, people who've had interesting careers, whether it's city and those sorts of things, or we've got a circus performer, chef, and business owners, all kinds of interesting people who've done tons of stuff. A NASA scientist, a hostage negotiator, who's good story. I feel like they need to all come on my podcast. <laughs> I know, you really do. We can have a whole series of just like now teachers, just send them to you. This is, I was told we had our conference last week. It's an amazing woman, Sarah, who's been an Oxford Don and is a serious neurologist and is now becoming a chemistry teacher because she actually thinks that she has more to offer there. I just love it. So there's just amazing bunch of different, very different people. And it's been just such a huge privilege talking to people, seeing them, understanding what it is they want from this next chapter and and helping them if teaching is, is right for them. So when they come to now teach, is it like they have this inkling of, I think I want to become a teacher. What do I do now? Yeah, exactly. I mean, everyone's got, of course, a different path. And for a lot of people, there's, you know, people have been saying to them for some time, oh, you should be a teacher. You'd be a great teacher. I feel like the world perhaps divides into those who've got a novel in them and those who've got a teacher in them. And maybe there's an overlap. A lot of them say, people have always said I'd be a good teacher and I never, for whatever reason, it, they didn't do it. And so they're trying to figure out how the system in the UK is ridiculously complex, but also that people not sure. Everybody's first question, whether they're 35 or 65, is always, I think I'm probably too old, aren't I? <laughs> so which our answer is obviously, no, of course not. But they feel like maybe they're not wanted or their skills wouldn't be useful or they're just I don't know they mean so many different things don't we when we say I think I'm too old a mixture mm. I don't suppose I can learn I don't suppose the community be welcoming of me I don't know a whole bunch of things caught up in that phrase there's such a stereotype as well the old spinster teacher with the bun and wire glasses kind of thing it really was at least I feel like when I was growing up there was this image of this old teacher who never really amounted to anything and stayed and was in the classroom and was very old. Yeah. And, <laughs> yeah. and so it is hard to picture yourself, no matter what your age, you don't picture yourself that person. And so it's, oh, is it a bad thing to be an old quote unquote teacher? Well, exactly. Whereas actually the irony is in this country, and I think America is similar, but in this country, we have the youngest just about the youngest teaching population in the OECD world because we recruit people as graduates mostly and we burn them out and mm -hmm. they don't stay. So they are young. But I think that there's a very, I mean, all that whole crony thing is a horrible image for so many reasons. But you're right, of course, it is there in teaching and links to this idea of, of whether... I think one of the things that attracts people to now teach, because of course you could become, people have often become yeah, teachers at different stages, nothing stopping anyone. But I think... It can be very helpful when in the process of losing one identity and creating a new one to have a gang of people to attach yourself to or a thing to almost hook your coat on and say, that's what I'm part of. This is what I'm involved in. It helps you make sense to yourself and to other people, which is important. You know, you, you kind of can explain yourself to yourself, I guess, and feel a little confident. And then in a very practical sense, having this gang of people that you're doing it with, we offer all kinds of support that I know is brilliant and the program team are incredible. But actually, truthfully, I think the single biggest thing we give them is each other is people who get it, people who understand what it feels like. Yeah. And I think bringing people together, I don't know, that's something that I particularly like to do. I love to get people together. I have a triathlon club that I founded and I coach them, but that's a small bit. What really is the rewarding part of this club is that these people have found each other 
and exactly. they do more, they do longer races or they train harder because they've got this group of people. And I, I love the concept of as someone who's constantly looking for the next thing and loves reinvention, a group of people you can just be with who understand that you are going through the same thing. Yeah, I think that's exactly it. Because we're so used, in a funny way, I think our network, you form networks at university, if that's your path, you maybe in your early job. And then in a way, they often stay reasonably static. So mm. it's quite hard to find a group of people who, you, if you do something a very big shift, they feel like your, your tribe, if you like. And at the beginning, within that group, the gang, if you like, at the beginning, yeah, it's a lot about survival. Maybe there's an analogy with the running, you know, but for the teachers, February is the toughest month of the first year. It is tough. It's really tough. You will get there kind of thing and practical tips on what to do when your lesson plan or the photocopy is broken or something. But more excitingly, certainly for me, is this sense of the possibilities when you have, I know, a bunch of data scientists thinking about how data is used in schools, or when you have a bunch of former TV producers thinking about how you might embed film within the English curriculum. It can go on and on. It's everything from the kind of curriculum technical skills through to the bringing in networks of professionals to from a career's perspective all the way up to actually shifting the way systems operate sometimes in schools. Now, not for a second suggesting, oh, look, we've got this army of people who are coming in to revolutionize schools and make them all better. And we have to be very careful that we're not suggesting that they can instantly change everything. But it's a really fascinating kind of collision of different worlds. And it feels that if they can manage it well, which they can, this kind of positive collision is, is exciting to see what, what emerges. I love that it is kind of saying for once, because I don't feel like this is always a thing, especially when you're applying for a job as a second career or as someone who's older. But I love that it's saying that your life experience is valuable yeah. because even if it isn't going in and revolutionizing things, if you do have ideas around what your former career is going to bring in all kinds of things that you wouldn't yeah. have if you were fresh out of school. Yeah. If you're the best one in the world as a 22 year old teacher, there was stuff I just I had no idea about or and resources I couldn't draw on. And it's nice, actually, because everyone's a bad teacher at the beginning. Everybody, whatever age they start teaching, you don't start off being a good teacher. And that's really hard if you've been very good at something else. Mm. It's differently hard. I mean, I think it's hard when you're 22 if you've never been very good at a profession because you don't know if you'll ever manage anything. That's hard. <laughs> but it's differently difficult if you've been brilliant at something and suddenly you're the bottom of the hierarchy and schools are hierarchical and you can't figure out the technology, let alone how to keep your year nines under control. That's quite brutal for a while. But actually being the one who can say when they're looking for speakers for a sixth form, something or other, oh, you know, I can easily find a, a lawyer, a doctor, an accountant, whatever, you know, that that's helpful. And then as time goes by, of course, yeah, those skills, the things you're bringing in, the part of yourself, the way you relate to the world, the way life it's yeah it's just hugely valuable and I think part of our job is to say that even though in the first couple of years it isn't sometimes obvious to now teachers that their previous skills are valuable or will ever be valued you know, I'm always interested in this point of not so much the, the aha moment of career change and I'm going to do it but the sort of one year on slog part okay everybody was interested when I said this now I'm just doing it and I don't think I'm actually very good at it what now do you find just with the groups of people that you've worked with, I'm just interested from a perspective of a lot of people I've talked to on the second chapter, 
maybe were told they could only be as far as several years ago as a woman. I can be a nurse, a teacher. There was that kind of a nurse, a teacher, a wife, a mother kind of thing. Do you find people that maybe avoided becoming a teacher the first time around because they were rebelling against this, you should do this? Yes. Or even a kind of sense of being the good girl, which maybe meant that if you could be something, and I use strongly heavily in quotes here, better than a teacher you know if mm-hmm. you could get into I think it's this wonderful teacher several of our wonderful teachers who you know they did the good girl thing they worked really hard they got the best grades to get the best job which wasn't necessarily something they loved but it was the hardest thing they could do it was the and they suddenly get to a certain age and they think I never even really enjoyed that I would have liked you know and then they begin to think about what do they like what indeed have they enjoyed in their career and very often it's mentoring younger colleagues and teaching them mm-hmm. the ropes and so on which isn't exactly a a rebellion at that early stage, perhaps, but almost a rebellion later of saying, all I've done is obey the rules and pass all the exams, you know, that kind of person. I think there is a yeah. kind of active rebellion to say, I, I don't choose that anymore. It's also a liberation, I think, to, to sometimes, and I know talking to someone like Lucy, be very open and saying when she was 22, she wanted the status that came with being at the FTM. I think probably particularly as a woman, she wanted that, to sit next to some man at the dinner party who says, what do your husband do? And she can say, well, I am a columnist at the NT. That, that, right. you know, she, she almost needed that first. And that's okay. <laughs> status does matter to us. But perhaps then you can redefine status later on and say, this is a more important kind of status that I'm going to reclaim or something. Yeah, because going back to what we were talking about at the beginning as well, teachers are woefully underpaid. So I know growing up, we didn't have a lot of money. So the idea of being a teacher to me was like, I won't have, I'll just continue not to have money. There is probably a liberation in having a job that has that status or has that money involved. And then being able to say, you know, I've kind of done that. Mm -hmm. Now I can be a bit more comfortable taking something that I don't have to worry as much. For sure. And I think clearly compared to say a 22 year old, there's an element in which you have something you could probably return to if it doesn't work out. So it's very liberating. People were saying, I think that for, a lot of people you hit a point perhaps if you're lucky enough I don't know what it'll be like for the next generation but if you were lucky enough to reach an age where your mortgage is paid off your kids move out suddenly you probably are cash richer than you've been for years and years and years and that's a moment that for a lot of people they think well actually the big thing I wanted to use and make money for was a secure home and to raise my kids and if I've done that then suddenly I'm a little freer to to think about what next and that's a hugely luxurious position compared to teachers who's 22-year-olds who've got to climb up that mountain. So, you know, and by no means am I suggesting that everybody is in a wealth position. Then the fact is that teaching is probably better paid than people imagine, I often think, especially if you do want to go up the ranks and become mm-hmm. a head teacher. It, it's comparable to, I don't know, civil service for sure. So it's a weird combination of it's not only salary that takes away from the status, I think. It's more complex than that, why we don't value teachers enough. My feminist side says it's also been a traditional women's role. So mm-hmm. therefore it doesn't have value. I'm sure that's right. Which is why one thing that I'm really pleased about with now teaching, I know this is really about women and career change, but we have more men changing career than we do women. And they are much more often with us, the ones that would they'd acknowledge they would have quite liked it. They mm-hmm. knew they would have perhaps liked it at 25 and felt that, you know, they ought to do something higher earning. And mostly it's bad, the gender pay gap, but there is just a tiny little 
little bit in there that means that maybe we have lower expectations, which gives us freedom. Anyway, we, I definitely have had multiple times the conversation with a man who said, I just couldn't have done it at 25. It would have been deemed such a failure. But now at 55, this is what I really want to do. But of course, I think if you have a bunch of 55-year-old men going into a career, I hope, wrongly, but I hope that does help boost the status because you're right, it's low status like nursing because it is still overwhelmingly female. And I think gender equality, no matter how it works out, if we can get to that point because men are starting to do more traditionally female roles and vice versa, and however it ends up happening, I'm all for it. So (laughs) I think that's a good balance. And it's a good sign that people in general are just feeling more free to pursue what's going to make them happy and that therefore they should be better at. Yeah. And I, you know, I think of the colleagues I work with and I teach all of the younger men, we're not a huge organization, but the, you know, they've all taken extended paternity leave. And you know, I think all that stuff is shifting too, which I find encouraging. So of course you've specialized in these career, I will use your word shifts, even though I think they're <laughs> amazing career and life changes, but that you've specialized in it, you know, having these ideas around teaching, but for anybody who might be listening that is inspired by all these people making career changes, what's your advice? Great question. I never, I was like listening to other people's advice. I'm not sure I've got any to give. I think probably just talking, talking both because when you're in that moment of thinking, I know I need to do something different, but I don't know what. It's just having a hundred conversations with people until something sticks. And I think I've had that conversation two or three times now in my life where you know as you're having it that this could really change anything I had it in a pub with William Fine I had it with Lucy Calloway holding a baby and more recently I had it with a journalist I'm about to try and start a thing called about now like maybe called now foster but about trying to get more people into foster care and it was just a conversation about why can't if we can do this for teaching could we do it for other things and I think it's when you have all those kind of late night random totally random chats the more of those you have then I think that's better. So talking, but then also once you're doing something, just talking to everyone who you can possibly persuade to be a supporter and advocate, give you advice, shoulder to cry on. I just think surrounding yourself by smart people is a good thing. Well, I would never not take the advice of, you know, that means I could chat in a pub, (laughs) have a coffee, (laughs) having a coffee with someone. I think it is those things because as you were talking, I'm thinking like how many amazing chance meetings that have led to something and you do get the vibe like, oh, I'm saying something that it's exciting to me. Yeah. And you might never have thought of it, but somebody says, oh, I'm thinking about going into teaching. Do you have any advice? Actually, I have a lot. Actually, yeah. maybe I should have a new startup charity exactly. organization. <laughs> yeah, and it's so much about the chemistry of who you're talking to. Can you make it work and all of that? So I hope I hope COVID doesn't, doesn't get in the way of too many of those spontaneous chats. Although on the other hand, you can do it like this, like we're doing now with people you don't even know where in the world they are. So hopefully it swings around about. I have to say that Zoom conversations, though they're not the same as an in-person coffee, it has made me able to chat with so many people for the podcast and for work and for friendships and people that you just don't normally see no. that, yeah, it's opened the world up quite a bit. So I can't exactly yeah. complain about that. No, it is amazing. But I think it's in the same way, I suppose my ambition for now teachers is that they talk because I'm just already we begin to see the kind of wonderful randomness of when you have two people with very different paths but perhaps at some point they've got something in common or maybe they're now working in the same school or they 
have similar paths working in very different schools and they have one of these random conversations and that takes them off in the direction where they start trying to change something and we have these conferences every year and during COVID they're excellent everyone's getting 10 out of 10 for all of our you know they're filling in lovely forms and saying all the speakers are great and that's fine but actually the whole point really is the conversation and they happen in the coffee queue or over lunch really don't they so I'm excited to have much more opportunity to do stuff with my teachers all together again. This seems like a good point for me to ask if you brought a quote for me today. I was thinking about that. I'm so unquoty. I feel like I need to stop asking this question because so many people are like, oh, this was like stress inducing. <laughs> I thought that I was like, oh, gosh, this is really stress inducing. And do I want to go all sort of cliche and inspirational or more British tongue in cheek? So I cheated and had two. One was just that Woody Allen, if you want to make God laugh, tell him about your plans, which Lucy introduced me to. And I just think is. So powerful, this idea that we have some kind of a control over, you know, people always think, oh, trust your instincts or be strategic, all this kind of stuff. And I think so much of the time, yes, luck. And I can tell them my story and vaguely make it go here now, but never feels like it at the time, does it? And I'm a bit dubious about planning to kind of be open or something. But the other one that just, the person that I find very inspiring, and while he's talking about both genders, I think it applies to women in particular, perhaps is that the only growing natural resource is older people. And so often we see older life, extending life and so on as being all these the problems of older age and health span and all these things that are very important and difficult. Fundamentally, we are very likely to live a lot longer than our grandparents did mm -hmm. in better health. And there's a lot of luck involved in that and unequal and all that. But it's incredible. It's amazing. It gives the opportunities for the kind of conversations about life that we're having. But also, as in our teach, and I hope one day now foster, it is this amazing resource. We often think of it as a kind of drain, which clearly, clearly it isn't. And some of the biggest problems, I think, will be solved by older people. Yeah, we just need to recast it. Anyway, so I love Mark Friedman, and I love the way he talks about older age. And just embracing all of the prior experience and life lessons. And I don't know, I feel like the more modern we've gotten, the more in a way we've stepped away from that because we're not sitting around a fireside with our grandparents mm. anymore or living in the same community. I mean, I know even my grandmother, my mom's mom growing up lived within a few minutes drive. So she'd pop by when we were having a hard time and bring my mom something to service for dinner or, you know, we're not seeing that. But then at the same time, we're starting to appreciate the older generation again, I hope, I think more. So I do think what a resource and what a shame it would be if things like now teach didn't exist to draw on that. I agree. I hope so. And I think that there's a risk, as you say, that we also kind of, if you look at the kind of cult of youth, and then almost that you don't want it to go either far. You don't also don't want to get to the stage of all old people are wonderful, wise, kind of that stereotype is bad too. We just all oh, here we are muddling along together and helping each other and bringing different, you know, it's just diversity really, isn't it? We've got, we got to sort of mix, mix all the generations up and keep them together. And we, yeah, we had the great privilege of living with my parents through lockdown and garnishing that, the, the way those relationships work between grandparents and children is such an yeah. important one, I think. Well, I think what you're doing is really incredible. I think you've had lots of life and career changes to talk about. So I'm glad you were here <laughs> to talk about your many chapters. I look forward to knowing more about when the second book comes sometime in the future, sometime. knowing about Now Foster and everything as well. So thank you so much for coming and chatting with me today, Katie. Thank you for having me. And thank you for this great podcast series that you do. It's fantastic. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, tell a friend, follow us on Instagram, and sign up for the Second Chapter newsletter. 
The second chapter is brought to you by Slackline Productions, a production company dedicated to redressing the balance of women's stories being told and who's telling them with a specific focus on women 35 plus. You can find us at thesecondchapterpodcast.com and slacklineproductions.co.uk. Thanks again.